Radio. Welcome to the Tone That Made Us podcast. I'm your host, James, and with my consigliere, Dan Cavalieri, we explore the gear that creates the tones, that creates the soundtracks of our lives. We love tone. We love the gear that makes the tone. And the other reason why we do this is because it relieves our wives from having to hear the utter bullshit of gear talk that we go through when we all get together. So today's guest is a huge influence on us and how our tone has evolved over the years. He's played in epic bands like Government Issues, Scream, Jawbox, Burning Airlines, Channels. Um, his solo record is one of my absolute favorite records, and he knows this, and I, I've, I've told him this before. Um, also, amazing engineer and producer. Um, he's produced records for Clutch, Texas is the Reason, Jets to Brazil, Shiner, Promise Ring, Against Me, Jawbreaker, way too many to even mention. Welcome, live from Magpie Cage Studios, Jay Robbins. Wow. Hi. Will you be my life coach? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm actually live from my house. Oh, right it yeah. looks rad. It looks I'm, like a studio. Well, we set up our old bedroom to be like a music room. So that, so ideally it's sort, it's sort of halfway there and we're still kind of treating the, you know, doing the acoustic treatments and stuff. But because um, I want to be able to work at home. And then also my wife, Janet, is a musician and she's, you know, we had our band channels together, but she's made, mm -hmm. she's been making electronic music on and off. And um, so we wanted to set up a place that we could use that's like a dedicated music room. So that's nice. why. Yeah. That's awesome. a blessed space. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know what, let's start this podcast off like we start them all off, which is we've all had the moment where we saw a band that made us want to be a musician but what was the first time you saw a musical instrument that moved you oh wow the first time i saw one like yeah. oh. the first time you saw a guitar and went holy crap i need to play that uh i don't know it might be a bass okay it might have been, but yes. um, <laughs> Dan's happy about that. Yeah, I mean, it might have been the um, it might have been the Rickenbacker four thousand one that, um, but no, nah, it would have been before that though. I mean, it's not. It's more about hearing things, honestly, than seeing them. You know, like like it's about hearing. Um, like I have a I have a sort of weird path to rock music because. I, when I was a kid, um, I was like a, a super nerd and I was really, really into, like, I didn't like rock and roll at all because rock and roll was kind of like the music of the kids that wanted to beat me up. <laughs> and, you know, I was just more of like a, like a weird art nerd and I got super into movies and movie soundtracks. And so, like, I spent a lot of time listening to orchestra recordings and I think those sounds are probably the things that made me want to make music, like hearing, hearing like a symphony orchestra and like this, you know, sort of massive percussion section and like, or like real, um, just like even listening to an orchestra and hearing the space in an orchestra recording, you know, mm. feeling like the sense of space and where the, uh, the strings are sort of, oh, the violins are kind of over on the left and the cellos are kind of over on the right and they're all but they're all working together like you're in this kind of sound world 
And then certain things that would happen like, like arrangement wise in an orchestra, like, uh, you know, uh, like Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which is just like the most, one of the most insane, you know, just like a really powerful, dynamic, engaging and crazy piece of music that really tells a story. It's like, I mean, I think that's probably, those are probably the kinds of things that made me want to make music. But of course, then if you're, you know, you're like 13 years old in the Maryland suburbs and you don't talk to anybody, you can't really do anything with that except try and, you know, I would like listen and try to transcribe stuff off of records. I didn't have any formal musical education. So I would put headphones on and just try to listen to where the notes are and be like, oh, well, why does this note, if there's a melody, but then if something changes in the harmony, the melody has this completely different feeling. Like, what, what is that? What did they just do, you know? And try to find that change and be like, oh, that's where the change is that suddenly made it, 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 was, it was sweet and now it's kind of dark. And that's why, because they moved down the half step or this other voice came in. So I was like super into that kind of stuff, which of course it didn't, have any connection with the outside world it was just this kind of mental world that i was in and then i was in this art class and i uh that's where i made really my some of my best friends to this day were in this kind of art magnet program and they were all punk rockers and uh but we bonded over things like hr giger you know kind of like transgressive right. art and stuff and movies especially and um, so they kind of adopted me and started taking me to shows because I think they knew that I needed help. <laughs> and, uh, so, We're going to fix this kid up. Yeah. So it was, and that was, it was actually going to see, like, uh, I went to see, I went to this like super weird little show that was like a couple of my friends' bands played in a Chinese restaurant. I don't remember watching, like, it wasn't so much about seeing someone actually play you know, what, what instrument or whatever. I was just like, you know, like it was more like people I knew personally were making something happen. And we were in a room full of, you know, maybe it's only like 20 or 30 people, but they were just energized. You know, they were fucking into it. Even if it was like, uh, you know, half the set was covers. It was like the specials or joy division or something. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. and so, that's you know and then i went to see government issue was actually the first band that i actually saw play a proper show it was like a big show at, at uh wilson center in dc with tsol and marginal man and i was just like in a room full of weirdos who had no rules <laughs> going ape shit, and it was loud and i was just like i want to be here this is where i want to be so that's probably it. And then I would just start listening. So I started listening to like Joy Division. That's probably like Peter Hook is probably the first bass player that I listened to where I was like, all right, this, I can, I can get my head around this and started trying to learn those songs the way that I learned, you know, melodies off of like a John Williams soundtrack or a Stravinsky symphony or something. Because then I was like, oh, I can actually do this. Like all I need is an instrument. And I'm like, listen, suddenly it's, you know, like I learned probably all of uh, closer, you know, cause the bass lines are yeah. so melodic, but yeah. I mean, so that's, those are probably the first that's, I mean, I think if I had to name a musician who like, you know, made a, 
the biggest impact on me. It's at like initial impact. It might be Peter Hook. Wow. So what, um, what, yeah, no kidding. What um, was your first bass then at that point? Well, the, the first bass that I owned actually was a Fender Music Master. And oh, like, wow. yeah, and I, I had no idea. Like I was so, I was like in such a, I mean, also this is like, we're talking about, you know, 1983 or three or 84. So I had no, um, it's not like the internet where you can just go online and suddenly, you know, every 15 year old that is interested can know the entire history of like Fender guitars and like give you the serial numbers of what, you know, like, right. it's not like that. It was just like, I was like, I want a bass. Okay. Here's a bass. So I had no idea that this music master was even short scale. I was just like, this is an instrument I got in my hands. I'm going to learn. This is a bass. Right. Yeah. So, so it was funny because um, I played in a thrash, this thrash band called Punchline that was a, a friend of mine had been the bass player and he went away to college and he was like, they need a bass player. You, you should do it. So I played with them for a little bit. And then I saw this flyer that uh, a government issue needed a bass player. And this was the first band that I went to go see. I, I saw them a million, you know, hundreds of um, hundreds of times, but you know, I would, I, any chance I had to see government issue, I was there. So when I saw this flyer in the punk rock record store, uh, I, I was there with my friend and Damon and he was like, you know, I'm like, what if I tried out? And he's like, yeah, you should try out. So I wrote the number down, you know, and I called up John Stab and I'm like, I want to try out. And he's like, okay. So I went with my music master bass and my like, uh, I think it was, I don't remember what amp I had. It was a Fender amp, but it was like woefully underpowered. Cause you know, Tom Lyle was playing, a, you know, JCM 800 half stack, oh, yeah. right? So I'm like plinking away with my little bass and I have no idea how I got in. I mean, I knew the songs I had like studied. I was like super into it. Um, that's where the nerd factor comes in again, right? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. But so I knew I knew the material, but I was inaudible and I was like a nervous wreck and just like a weird little nebbish. And like somehow at the end of this audition, they were like, all right, you're in. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I don't know if they thought I was just like malleable, you know, because I was just this little suburban kid. And they were all, you know, at that, that was like the age difference was like, I was probably 18 and they were like 24, which, you know, at that age, it was, oh, it's yeah. like, wow, it's these big. Guys, these guys that's a huge old. difference, yeah. especially at that time frame too. Yeah. So for whatever reason, maybe they thought they were like, all right, he's going to be easy. To, we'll just tell him what to do. You know, he's just like this kid, he's psyched. Then, cause I think they had tried out people who were more like kind of veterans of other bands and who, who were like, all right, when do we go on tour? And those guys were like, look, this is our band that you're joining. You know, I don't know. I'm just extrapolating. I have no idea, but whatever, whatever, maybe the, you know, maybe I dressed cool that day. I wore my like trench coat or something, <laughs> but like, but for whatever reason I got in. So then they were like, okay, first thing you need is like, let's get you a real bass. So, uh, so I went and got a, a, a P bass, which I probably was like a seventies P bass. Wow. Um, that I had for a long time. Oh no, actually initially, right. That's when I played the 4001 because Sean, the, the guy who was playing drums at the time had this Rick. Um, I can't, now I can't remember the order. I, I forget if, I forget if the P bass came first or the Rick. I played the Rick for a while though. And, and then I bought it from him and that's, that's, I have deep regrets about selling that 
instrument because I think the I think the P bass came first, and then and then when I saw the Rick, I was like, oh, that's you know, that's the bass. But but then I ended up playing the P bass mostly in uh, in GIs. Nice. So uh, so you you got the the Rick from Sean, but where'd you get the P bass? Um, off of uh like the one ad, you know. Oh wow! Like I just it was in the listings and I went to somebody's house and they, you know, it was like a terrible cut was like caught with a coffee table color, you know, like that, like real kind of like brown, brown. but I'm like, well, this Mocha. is right. The it's, it's the old, for that. Like, I'm not going to go looking for another bass. Like this is sort of, you know, I think, I think Tom was kind of like Tom, the guitarist was kind of like, here's what you need. You need a seventies P bass. And I was like, oh, there it is. Okay. So, um, and I think I paid like 300 bucks for it. Love and, it. And I, in all the time that I had it, I did, it was, I was terrible to like anybody who knows anything would just be like, why did you do this? Cause I repainted it by hand a bunch of times. Like, like yeah. I made it like, uh, like safety orange, you know, oh, just like nice. acrylic paint, like, you know, nice. on it. it was stupid, but, but my, my bass player actually has that mocha brown bass as well. Shout out Rob O'Neill. Yeah, that was, so is that uh did, did you play that uh what was your first gi record was it you uh, you yeah it was and that's i played the the, the p bass on you that's what i was asking i was just curious yeah and i feel like maybe the sound on you might be mostly a di i can't remember i don't that was like that was also the first time i went into an, a real recording studio and i was just like in i you know i mean i kind of remember it and i but I was sort of paralyzed with awe, you know? I mean, I remember the room. I remember Pete Moffat, you know, like his drums sounding so awesome. I remember the, that Tom had the, um, the, the place was called Lion and Fox. It was in, um, it was in Northeast DC and they mo they did a lot of reggae recording there, but they, they had this, um, uh, scream recorded there too. Scream recorded no more censorship there, but, um, the Lion and Fox had really cool live room. I want to say it was like, you know, it was a pretty high ceiling, big like live drum room. I think it had a cement floor. And then they had the, the guitar ISO was like a long, it was almost like a hallway. So the amp was down at the end with a 57 up close on the grill. And right. then like way back at the far end of the room, there was another, I think another 57. And that was just all they used for it. But, you know, Tom had, such a phenomenal sound that it's like i think you could record him with a you know tin cans and string and it would sound amazing so, <laughs> um but uh but yeah so i can't remember what amp i used because i was just too busy going like oh my god i'm making a record i better not fuck up but uh so at that point that early on um who's sound who was influencing your sound um i mean i mean honestly tom probably like 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 because it was more like for me it was more about writing right like it's the biggest things biggest influences for me were like uh peter hook uh mike fellows who was the bass player of rights of spring like like listening to all the everything that mike fellows mike wrote um he was in gis briefly he he played on uh joyride which joyride right yeah and he wrote, uh, he wrote Understand, which was like one of the, like it was a that was a big song for G. 
APIs. And for a lot of people, like Mike Fellows wrote that bass line. He wrote the ones, the, the tunes that had like really melodic bass lines. And um, so, and he really, he took that way further in Rites of Spring. So probably him and Peter Hook were like the biggest, and Lemmy were probably like the biggest influences to me. Nice. On, on you know, as far as like, what's the identity of the bass in a song, you know, can the bass like drive a song? And I was always trying to write that kind of stuff. But I mean, I mean, I remember also going on tour with GIs and having a, um, I had like an acoustic amp after I got, after I got rid of the Fender cause it just wasn't loud enough. I had this acoustic amp that blew up maybe two shows into the tour and we were in Memphis and we went to Doug Easley who was an engineer there who, uh, I don't know, I think maybe we found that somebody said like Doug's trying to sell an SVT. And we went to his studio, which at that point was in his garage behind his house. And uh, all of which is like, for me, like, remember, like I'm like a, a total shut in, right? And like punk rocks just exploded my world. So I'm like, like, whoa, this dude has a recording studio behind his house. No way. And then I'm like, <laughs> and then we get this amp that's just like such a monster. And of course, sounds amazing. So it was always an SVT after that. But I think Tom was really guiding the like, he was like, here's what you need, kid, you know? So and of awesome. course, he was it's definitely right about that because that's a great combination. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's interesting because uh, people outside of the punk rock hardcore thing, which is what we all grew up in, um, we're going to have, you know, listeners that are, that are kind of foreign to it. We were all really self-influenced or, or I, I would say maybe co-influenced by our own scenes, mm -hmm. right? It was, it was hearing a friend who, you know, who, or, or was listening to Daryl Jennifer's bass right. sound, right? Oh, or, you know, you know who do you just sorry i don't want to interrupt go for you. it no no, no please do the other the other huge thing was um there was a band in dc in the 80s called 9353 who were enormous in this one moment like this was a band that could pack out the 930 club every show like people were just rapidly enthusiastic super entertaining and really weird band like like a, a an amalgam of influences that from like i mean they were they were a real underground band um their uh closest influences were probably stranglers uh this this british band called punishment of luxury um uh frank zappa um just a very uh, and 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 a of phenomenal live band and i went to see them every chance i could get because they were just like they were from no genre you know it wasn't hardcore it wasn't rock it, it was nothing normal about this band and um but they, they were super hooky and 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 it just i mean really like a powerful influence on myself and my friends and the the bass player of that band was this guy vance bacchus who I think he was always somebody that we were like, like Vance is the shit. Like that dude was, in, was, uh, and for someone who wrote bass lines that were hooks, somebody who is like a super tight, like, you know, tight but loose kind of player, like had a great sound, but also like grooved and like super cool stage presence, like sort of gothed out, like kind of 
I mean, just a very, they were a very weird band and they're a band that hasn't really, like they're a real touchstone for me too, because, you know, there's all the, always those bands in scenes, in local scenes that like, like they're really important and they don't translate outside. And you know, now yeah. that doesn't happen so much because anyone can find anything from anywhere. But then it's like, and they've almost, the ex-members of that band have almost gone out of their way to ensure that it remains obscure, you know? Like nine, like they were going to be in the Salad Days documentary and the singer guy basically made sure that that didn't happen. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. So it's, it's like if, if you were there and you knew, then you knew. And if you miss it, tough shit, you know? But a super influential band. I mean, and that, that I, I just thought, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, but in, in terms of like being influenced by somebody from your local scene, yeah. that's a, a perfect example. Like that band made a mark on, for, for me and, and, and my friends at the time who are, I'm still close with, that's like an indelible influence, you know, and you can find their stuff on, there's on YouTube and, uh, you know, Discord did some re uh, reissues that or they co huh. co-released some reissues um but it's still very obscure you know but uh, anyway. check it out yeah it's uh it's funny cause... i mean it's it's and either you'll love it or you'll hate it it's, oh, it's, it's, you said zappa so i'm gonna love it <laughs> so when you uh so now you have an svt you have this p base did you have a cabinet you played through was it something particular yeah, it was, it was did eight, you svt eight by ten we just bought the whole rig. You got the whole, the whole rig, rig together. From Doug Easley, yeah. That's awesome. I uh yeah, it was awesome. very similar. I was I got one at a garage sale because uh at the time people wanted to get rid of them because of how big and uh cumbersome right. they were. Uh yeah, they weren't the tilt well. backs either at that point. Those no. were the square no. monsters. Yeah. Right. Like you just have to like suck it up and yep. Just do, just do, just I do. had one that I got from James and it was so big and so heavy. It was completely clear of the Tolex. It was just bare wood and speakers, no mesh, no nothing. And uh, I had gotten another cabinet. And I, had, and I had been using it as a guitar cabinet. He'd been using the guitar cabinet. So I got it from him. And then when, when I moved out of my old house, we just left it. I couldn't fit anything else in the truck. And I was oh, just wow. like, I'm just leaving this. Wow. Yeah, you know, there was nothing original about it other than the yeah, wood. It was, I mean, I had swapped out spe- all the speakers. There were broken were speakers, yeah. It is kind of shitty, though, because that was like a 70s. <laughs> yeah, but it was it, at that point, it would, like he was saying, there was nothing original about it. It was destroyed. That There were uh, pieces of the wood were gone. It still had the, the, uh, the dolly. The dolly was in better condition than the cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what did you did you stick with that stuff for a while? When was your next big change? Did you move to guitar yeah, that was, first? I mean, I would never from that from that point onward. That's just what I played in in government issue. That was my assumption. You don't really go anywhere too big from a P base and an yeah, SVT. I mean, rig. No, I mean, that's why would you why would you not play an SVT? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. So GINs. Um, yeah, and um, what made you want to start playing guitar? Uh, I think part of it was the feeling of um, wanting to sing because I had a lot of kind of melodies in my head. Um, and 
and uh, and John, the singer of GIs, you know, who's like such an iconic character, he really had a he really had a particular way that he would approach his vocals, and you really couldn't get him to get out of that pocket, and and um, so. I remember a lot of times in GIs going like, God, there's so many other ways you could sing to this music and, and sort of feeling like, wow, well, I would, you know, and singing is like, feels good to do, you know? And, uh, and then the other thing also was, um, you know, writing on bass doesn't always in a, in a band like government issue, it wouldn't always translate, you know, it's like, it's like I would start to hear songs in my head, like kind of hear the whole song and then not really be able to, um, I'd sort of show it to the band and it would morph into something else that, you know, was cool, but I'd be like, you know, if I played guitar, probably everyone would understand where I'm coming from a little better. Um, and it's also easier to play guitar and sing so that's really, oh, yeah. that's really why I was just like, I was like, you know, kind of needing to hear more, just needing to hear more notes in a chord, you know, needing to hear more, more sound. So, yeah. So at that point, um, what was your, so is that the point where you started Jawbox? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I was, you know, trying to play guitar for a while, but I mean, by, I like, I borrowed like a Hondo. Les Paul from a friend of mine, you know, I had that sitting around for a while. Yeah. And then I can't, I can't, I truly can't remember what my first guitar would have been the actual first guitar I played in Jawbox, but, but that's, you know, yeah. I mean, I mean, basically GI's ended. Um, I played bass in scream for a little while cause they, they, I actually tried out for scream cause they were really my other favorite band in DC at that time. And, and Skeeter Thompson had left the band and I didn't get in, but it ended up that, uh, cause I, I totally blew the audition cause I was just choking. Cause I'm like, I can't believe I'm playing with these guys. <laughs> and I, I really, really whiffed it. And then, uh, but then they went on tour and the guy who was playing, who, who they who did play with them, um, jumped ship because he got poached to be in, um, the four horsemen. Like they got to LA and, uh, somebody from Rick Rubin's, you know, cadre was like we're doing this southern rock revival thing and we need a bass player and you're it and wow. he was like so long suckers my ships come in so <laughs> so i was literally the only per other person that they could find that knew the songs so they called me and i quit my job and i flew and went i was playing bass and scream for a couple months which was super fun but then i was like i can't be first of all scream skeeter's too important to scream like it's he's just it's not you can't really be screaming that skeeter you didn't want it you didn't want to be not skeeter right exactly like i can't those are shoes that are too big to fill and then the other thing i was thinking was like all my favorite bands were they started from scratch it was like people who you know they started from scratch it was a group of friends who started from scratch and and but for me like I, i've now been in i've now been like this young kid that joined two established bands already and it just doesn't seem like it seems like it doesn't seem like it's the right thing to keep doing that if i could start something new and at that point i was dating kim coletta and she was just like on fire to start a band and i was like all right let's do this 
and so, uh, and I knew Adam Wade, he grew up near me. So, um, and he wasn't really playing with anybody, but I knew he was a great drummer and a good dude. And I was just like, let's play. And that's, that's, you know, how it happened. Wow. That's great. So at that point, let's, let's kind of hit on, um, on, I guess, Jawbox's first record, first time in the studio playing guitar and singing. Did you guys do that at Don's? No, the first thing we did was um, our four song EP, which we recorded with Barrett Jones on, right. um, on a track um, in his, he had a studio in his house in Northern Virginia that was called Upland Studio. And that was basically like uh, the, the live room was just like a big rumpus room like a, it was a suburban house. Right. And I think the control room was a bedroom that was kind of, I mean, if my, if memory, I mean, my memory is pretty sketchy, but I almost remember like he had set up the, the, the drums were in kind of like a, the biggest room that was like a living room. I think it had shag carpet. I think the drums were behind like a bar, you know, <clears throat> like, like a suburban, like wood panel bar. But right. which served as kind of amazing like a, like a, a, baffle, <laughs> a baffle right <laughs> and i can't remember where where we put the bass and and guitar cab um but i do remember that it sounded awesome barrett like was just like a wizard you know and i feel like that 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 ep just sounded so good um and, and that was the eight track uh eight track yeah, half inch, like half real, inch real? or it would have been half inch a track. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the other thing that was cool when, when we decided to form Jawbox, um, a few friends got together cause Tom was basically like kind of, Tom had a lot of, well, he didn't have a lot of amps, but he had a, he was downsizing his guitar rig. So, um, for my birthday, some friends got together and bought, a Tom, one of Tom's JCM 800 half stacks. And, uh, and so I, my guitar setup in Jawbox was Tom's 800 half stack and Tom's spare. Uh, it was a, it was his backup guitar. His Strat um, was a Strat. Ah, God, I'm so, I'm, I'm ashamed that I don't remember. It was like a sparkly blue. It might've been a Kramer. But it was a, it was a Strat with DiMarzio Super Distortions in it. And oh, so it was like a Super Strat. It was a Kramer. Yeah, Strat. yeah it was just the most and like candy apple blue. It was that was a Kramer color, so it makes sense. Yeah, it might that not was a stock Kramer, Kramer color too. Yeah, it might not have been a Kramer, but I think it probably. I know his main guitar was a Kramer. Um, I don't. It might have been an ESP, but I don't think it was an ESP. I think it was a Kramer. But anyway, it was a great guitar. It was awesome. It was definitely one of those guitars that like you pick up and just music comes out when you play it, you know? And I think it had a locking tremolo. Tom was big into his locking tremolos, but I never, I don't think I used it very much. Nice. So I have to ask then, do you still have the 800 half stack? I do not. And that's, that's another, I have, I have gear regrets. I have deep gear regrets and that's what a huge one. Because after a while, I remember being on tour with Jawbox and just sort of feeling haunted by this feeling that like, um, this would have been after we recorded Novelty, our second record. But I remember being on tour and being like, you know, 
this whole time I've just, I've just been poaching Tom's sound and it doesn't sound like Tom, because it's not Tom, but it doesn't, does it sound like me? I don't know. I just like inherited this thing that maybe I don't know what to do with it. And, and I was super into naked Ray gun and I knew that John Haggerty always played high Watts. And we were on tour and I found a high watt head and I just bought it and I sold Tom's 800 to to a band that we played with and I can't remember they were they were a band that if I name them you might remember them too and I but I can't remember but I like and unfortunately the high watt that I bought was a Roland era high watt with a PC that were like the board that like when the tubes get hot it warps and it yeah. short and short out and it sounded like absolute dog shit and um Ugh. but I was I was just I didn't know anything I didn't know anything yeah. at that time all I saw was like the high watt name and I was like John Haggerty plays a high watt I must have a high watt there's a high watt the money here have this have this amp you know like stupid 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 I wish I still had that 800 because oh, Tom got it from there was a guy there were probably still a guy in Laurel Maryland there's this dude Steve Angela um, who I mean I think his actual name is Steve Malkasidian but he had this business called Angela Instruments and everybody, all the DC hardcore people, but I know Brian Baker got a bunch of stuff. Ian got stuff from Steve Angela. He, Steve Angela would do like a kind of gray market sort of backdoor Marshall importing business. So everything that he had, and, and I think that he had relationships with, with, you know, you know, rock and roll deities. I can't remember who he got gear for, but it was like, Right. You know, I mean, he was like really legit. And um, so if you got something from, if you went to go see Steve Angela and you bought an amp or whatever, it was going to be awesome. And so Tom always got his stuff from Steve Angela. And um, so that I'm just, yeah, I mean, it, it, it breaks me up to think that oh, God. I have to sell that amp. Well, and these are some of our favorite stories, by the way. We love <laughs> wallowing in the one that got away. We've um, all got them. Oh, man, do we have them. That's great. <laughs> and and funny enough, my one that got away, we had the guy on. Well, you must know, because uh, you did a Shiner record, but um, Josh Newton, who was in Shiner and you yeah, know, yeah. playing all these other. So I sold him my 78 JMP. And I'm like, still like, hey, if you ever want to get rid of it. Right. Cause now you're like, once upon a time, I owned a 78 and <laughs> So, uh, so that's awesome. So let's jump ahead. So it sounds like gripe area, um, gripe era, novelty era, probably same gear. Um, you, you find a job box, hits it big, they get signed. <laughs> Yeah, right. well, I think I think I think when we did novelty, I probably had switched. I I went through a lot of guitars too, and I don't really know why I did that. I think I just got nothing. You know, I don't know. I I don't know why. It's weird to think back on it because I had the, I always had Tom's guitar for a long time. Um, I played SGs a little bit. I played. Um, I had one super good, uh, like a Univox Melody Maker copy with P90s in it. Nice. Is that the it. like the the junior looking the yes. double cut? Double that one? Yes. Yeah. I always love that, that guitar. 
Yes, that guitar is amazing. And I saw I you with that to, and loved it instantly. That's right up my alley. I sold it to Jeff Turner. Why did I sell that guitar? <laughs> amazing guitar. And then, and I had a, uh, um, Fender, I had a, um, Tele Deluxe, which I think is what I played on novelty Ooh. with, which also I put a super distortion in it. Um, but, uh, so the double, the double humbucker strand headstock. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, like the one that Garrett played and a couple of those, a couple of those dudes had those awesome Tele Deluxes. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was great. But once again, I, mine was furniture colored. So it was like kind of uncool. Yeah. <laughs> that Fender Mocha, that 70s Mocha. Yeah. That, like, such a weird color. It definitely it, it goes with 70s furniture. That's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. It's, awful. it's awful. actually Kohler. Dan Kohler has that one, right? He has his is the natural, like the Walmart. Oh, it's the natural. Yeah. So so you did a lot of guitar switching. But at that point, I mean, the one thing that a Jawbox fan could go back and listen through, through sort of the evolution of the first couple of records into My Own Special Sweetheart is an evolution of songwriting, right? From a little more raw, punky, DC, hardcore-ish, it started to evolve into melody. It started to evolve into different chords. I, I think that playing around with guitars it sounds like you were kind of feeling out your your evolution of sound i yeah i think so i just i don't i mean i feel like the first i mean i know the first two jawbox records for sure we were i mean i'll just like speaking personally i was just like whatever i was listening to like I was super influenced by and I wanted to be like that so I could point to songs on on grip and on novelty I could point to particular songs and just go like yeah this is who that's supposed to be like impossible figure that's supposed to be moving targets you mm. know like okay. um and then there's some other ones like uh like consolation prize or like freezer burn where actually freezer burn is actually not supposed to be like anybody that's probably musically a pretty original i mean it might have like i might think it's like a scream influence or like a little fugazi influence or something but like um you know anyway it's it's just a classic like young person thing where you're just like you get really attached to something you're just listening to these records you know like bob mold obviously like husker du is like his huge influence and just wanting to try to do that thing and then uh, there's one song on Grip actually, where oh I know what happened actually with with Tom's old guitar, I I switched over and I think I was playing SGs or something, and I still had Tom's guitar and I thought well this is sort of an extra guitar now, so I I I tuned it all to E like every string on the guitar was just E, and I wrote one song that way the song Grip, I wrote with that tuning and I was like well that's oh. pretty cool I couldn't really do anything else with that tuning. Um, and it, and then it started to feel stupid, like carrying around a guitar for one song when it's all in E, like it wasn't, you know, but, uh, so it was like, it wasn't like kind of feeling things out. I probably did that cause I was listening to Sonic Youth and I was like, all right, alternate tunings. What's more alternate than everything to the same mode? <laughs> <laughs> like, Take so, that Thurston. <laughs> right. This is the most alternate tuning. One note. But uh, that's pretty. Did you out Sonic Youth, Sonic Youth with that one? Because I don't know if they've pulled that off. Did they ever do a? No, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I don't think. I mean, 
but uh and i learned how to play that song in a more useful tuning now you know, i think eventually chris caraba kind of did the same thing but he went d-a-d-d-d-d-d and oh, like wow. every dashboard confessional song right. at least early days like, were written like what is it d-a-d-a-a-d that's save it for later right the yeah. english beat the pete townsend cover that's incredible tuning so awesome yeah i mean it's a little bit you feel a little bit dumb because it's like a one finger thing yeah. right but but then oh, look at like, keith richards man right right you just like you just hear it ringing the harmonics are ringing and it's just like this beautiful sound and you're like yeah not being so hard on yourself this is gorgeous you know okay but it's Google, also i mean Google dolls made millions doing that <laughs> it's an amazing thing to you know like coming from our scene in our world even have the mentality to be in a studio and want to do that that's just a strange thing for that time frame for our realm of people you're already forward thinking with that even the noise stuff we had going on in new york wasn't trying to do anything it was just trying to be noise we didn't no one was doing a we're trying to do alternate tunings not yeah not 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 a creative process like but i i don't know i feel like everybody i know I mean, if I think about all the bands that were around in, in, I mean, it's a weird, it's a weird thing, right? In hardcore, so, so-called, like when you, when you put the word hardcore in front of punk, but even, even in punk, there's that like weird reactionary thing where it's like, on the one hand, it's supposed to be like the sound of liberation. And on the other hand, it's like, well, we don't do that. Well, we don't do this. Well, you don't do that. Yeah. You know, like no guitar solo or whatever it might be. Like people come up with sort of this rigidity about like what constitutes punk. But to me, you know, it was like the number one thing. It's it's like about like liberation. Like you're surprise yourself. You know, like you like you're trying to like try things. Put, yeah, put out some energy, you know, and so you can't put yourself if you're really trying to do that, you you shouldn't be putting yourself in a box. But, you know, so but on the other hand, I'm a I'm a real big on the other hand guy. <laughs> I'm like I'm like on the other hand, like you achieve great things with severe limitations, you can achieve really great things. So, I don't, you know, but I mean I I feel like that's I mean, I think I totally take your point because I've no, I like have known so many people who were just like, why are you doing that? Why do you want to put piano? Like, or they'll hear like, they'll hear a song. They'd be like, like Joe number one, right? Fugazi, that Fugazi instrumental. And they're like, there's piano in a Fugazi song. I remember when that came out, (laughs) what's happening? I'm like, does it sound cool? Yes. Well, they probably did it because it sounds cool. Okay. Yeah. Was that, well, that was on that three song? Yeah. That, that three song, seven inch or whatever it was. Yeah. I remember, I remember hearing that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at that point, everybody eventually followed, right? Everybody eventually was chasing what Fugazi was doing. And Ian was always five steps ahead of everyone. And, and, and to some extent, you know, Walter, you know, Schreifels on, on in the New York scene was the same way. When just when you think you caught up with his vibe, uh, he was off doing something so completely different, influenced by such other things. Um, which is actually kind of a nice segue to let's talk about my own special sweetheart at this point. This is your first 
major label records and talk about you know being confined and you know doing a, a don't right, right. but it yeah, was right. like one of the greatest don'ts as far as i'm concerned that ever happened to the punk rock and hardcore scene so at that point you guys play around with some real distinct different tones you're working with big name producers you're giving yourself room to breathe musically and tone wise so let's talk about the recording of that record maybe some of the things that that you guys used um you know what what do you remember from that time in terms of gear or tone evolution well well so the number one like the defining change in the band at that time was that we changed drummers and uh when adam left the band and we asked zach barocas to join we had seen zach play in his uh his band powerline in rochester new york and he was just and you know i mean he's an he's an incredible drummer and really creative and and really powerful and has this distinct personality and um so you know we asked him to play and once he came in um he really started to drive things rhythmically and and to have the to make the rhythm section be much more of the engine of the songs and um so it changed the way that um, that we started thinking about, you know, what the guitars would do, and also what, you know, what. Uh, I mean, there's a big change between the first two records because the first record we were a trio, and the second record Bill Barbo joined. So then there's two guitars, and we were working out what those two roles would be, and you know how much more we could do with that much more sound. If that meant, you know, but um, but with Zach. Um, you know the rhythm section really became the the core in a way of became the core of a lot of the songs not all the songs but it was like it really he really gave the band way more dimension so the stuff that we wrote together we wrote a lot more out of jamming like kim would have a bass line we'd start jamming on the bass line and then it would develop into a song a lot of the earlier stuff um we didn't write so much by jamming um it was riff driven right or like kim and i would work together if she you know we would write songs based on her bass lines but we she and i would kind of work them out or i would kind of if the three of us jammed like i would tend to like direct the jam or whatever or maybe i would have a song and show a song but like right. um you know it was much more of a group process with zach and you can kind of hear the song structures a lot of them are different you can hear that it's a group negotiation as opposed to being like, you know, one person in the driving seat. It was kind of like everybody's taking turns steering the car kind of, but then, um, and then the other thing was, you know, so we wrote a lot of that material before we were talking to Atlantic records. And then, um, you know, our initial thing was we weren't even gonna, you know, we were sort of, we were like, well, this is the era when everybody's getting taken out to dinner. So let's go get taken out to dinner. But I mean, seriously, you know, like we didn't really necessarily think we were going to make that move, but we were like, we'll go to a nice restaurant and then talk about it and have somebody else pick up the tab. That'll be great. But, right. like, uh, um, but then, you know, we sort of got into a position where we said, if we, if, if they, if someone came to us 
and answered this list of impossible demands about how we want to do this, maybe we should do it. You know, and then the person who came to us was in the was Mike Gitter, who's someone that we had known for a long time from. Shout out, and, Mike Gitter. Yeah. Mike. So it's like it's like, oh, here's a guy we know. Here's a guy we trust. We know his heart's in the right place. He knows what we're about. And you know, it was in this magical moment when I think the major labels just didn't know. All they knew was if they didn't sign up everything that looked vaguely punk, that they stood to maybe not be able to cash in on it. Right. But they right. didn't necessarily know what they were going to do with it. So they were like, well, maybe the bands know what to do. Just let them do what they want, you know, for five minutes. And right. like that, we got in in that five minutes. So we were very lucky. So when we went to make the record, we were like, we want to work at our friend's studio, Oz, which was a beautiful studio in Baltimore, which is now my space. I, I moved into that space now from my studio. But, but this was a place that, had been built out in 1989, had this enormous, beautiful, like 22 foot ceiling live room with windows and just gorgeous ambience and, uh, you know, amazing gear. And like, it was cool because it was, it just sounded amazing, but we also had a personal connection to it because it was people that we knew who had, you know, put this thing together. We didn't know them well, but it was like, there was a connection. And then, um, we were like, we want to work with Ted Nicely, you know, who is because he produced Fugazi, like, and and he's not somebody that a major label, you know, that you pick off of a list and they go, you know, hey kid, you're gonna work with this guy. He's somebody that produced records that we actually love, and we knew that he understood where we came from because he worked with Fugazi. Like, what's not, you know? So, right. but at the same time, you know, he sort of had a foot in each world, so. You know, sure, he worked with Fugazi, he mixed the Fire Party record, you know, whatever. But then he also was, you know, trying to have a, the, a career as a producer and sort of move in this major label world. So, um, so that was a really good fit, I think. And then, but you know, a lot of the like process of making the record was not, it was not about exploration. It was about um, execution. It was really, Ted was very focused on getting the, the sounds um, and there was n almost no discussion of, about like arrangements or like song structure or, you know, his thing was like, you guys know what you're doing. This is your music, you know, yeah. um, but uh, so there wasn't really any tweaking of it. Like, like if you listen to that record, it's just a very raw, it's the sound of the band playing the songs and there's no extra stuff. So the, you know, the time that we spent, we spent a long time, like seven weeks on that record in which, in which time we learned how to play with a click track. We mm. discovered that I always push, I'm always ahead of the beat and I can't play in tune because I always grip too hard on the neck and everything's sharp. Um, I always sing flat. Um, I can't, uh, I couldn't perform the lyrics of the song with the kind of meaning that I needed to be, you know, con you know, I was just like shouting the words and I thought that was good enough, you know, like, so it was really like putting every aspect of performance under a microscope. And, um, and it was very challenging for me because 
um, I thought we were going to go in and be able to bash this record out in like a week mm-hmm. and then have a lot of time on our hands to like play around. And we spent every minute of every day just really minding these incredibly minute details of performance, mostly to do with me, sometimes to do with Zach because he was unfamiliar with playing with a click. Kim, 100% always in tune, on time, got her takes done, boom, like that. She's one of the most effortless bass players. And she looks like she's always having a blast, but she really, she doesn't look like she's killing herself to play. Right. Right. It just works. It just works. She just just works. She's just there. Boom. Done. You know, but for me, it was like agony, but it was extremely educational. And the only thing I remember, the main thing I remember too about that record is like, I had this guitar sound. I mean, and, and for Bill, like Bill was super, like Bill had a great, had a great sound. He had his Schecter, uh, uh, telly, Mm, you know, great sounding guitar. He had an 800 half stack. I mean, it was like plug in, boom. Sounds amazing. Done. Um, I was on this weird trip where I had a Mexican telly that I got for 200 bucks um, with some kind of no name single coil pickup in it. I had that shitty fucking Roland era high watt head <laughs> that sounded like cheese whiz. And then Ted was like, you should use two amps and we'll augment the high watt sound, which was, you know, real but it was sort. It was sort of on a on a weird tone quest to just make it super abrasive, and the high watt was good for that. It was like real ear piercing, like nastiness. And then the second amp was a Kelly tube amp, uh, which is an amp that I've never seen before or since. Or seen again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Definitely but not familiar. Never heard of it. It was like fairly clean and punchy. Like it was a good. Like it actually had some tone, unlike the high watt. And so it was the sound was like a blend of those two things. But I also remember a lot of time going back and forth with the control to the control room, being like, I would think I have the sound out in the live room, and I'd be like, and I think I wanted this like, because the other thing about that record was, um, the the social context of being like the Discord band that's selling out to a major label. In my mind, I was like, the coolest thing we could do is make the most abrasive non-commercial record that we could make. Right. That's the sound that we want to have it. That's the true sound of what we're doing anyway, is this is like, you know, the things that were really inspired. I mean, for me anyway, at that time it was like a lot of Midwestern bands like Big Black and stuff where it's like just really aggressive, you know, not hardcore, but just uh, abrasive and really like pushing a finger in your chest and like, kind of make the guitars hurt a little bit and, and more discordant chords, you know, and yeah. that kind of sound. And maybe, maybe it would have some kind of melodic center, just like to combine things that were, you know, sort of didn't like you got your chocolate and my peanut butter of, of music, you know, like abrasive, nasty Happy accident or, or just, just to be like abrasive, nasty, non-commercial, like fuck you but also have it be a song right. that's really a song, you know? So, and, and um, so I remember going to try and get the sound with Ted and a lot of the actual sound, like my tone on that record, a lot of it is because of compression and EQ in the control room of like kind of getting it 60% of the way there from, you know, I think it sounds awesome in the room with the amps, 
I go in the control room and I'm like, it's just not right. And then eventually, you know, moving mics a little bit and then Ted's just like tweaking EQs, you know, and I'm like, are you supposed to do that? You know, and then, it, and then suddenly it's like, oh shit, Eureka, that's the sound. That's the sound that, you know, will make my parents like run away, you know, <laughs> like, and, and, um, so that's what, you know, the sound was just like, like searching and searching, but it's not any particular, I mean, it's horrible gear. It's like a Mexican telly, a $200 Mexican telly, a crappy Roland Deere high watt and this a no name tube amp and just perseverance and like having a sound in your head, you know? So I, uh, it's funny that you say that too, because never in a million years, if if someone would have sat me down and I've listened to that record so many times, at no point would I've ever been like, oh, I don't know. I'm guessing it's a shitty 90s Mexican <laughs> Fender with a late era crappy high watt. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I think I, it's also, but also like Bill, Bill had such a classic, like, pure great like rock tone that they kind of synthesized together you know because his sound was just like perfect you know right yeah. out of the box it's like put a mic on it boom done great yeah you know? i so, always kind of thought of your guitar tone on that record to be a lot more like overlay texture right more like paint strokes over a masterpiece i mean if you just listen to the guitar tone um at the beginning of stabery right that ning -ning 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 -ning, that same note sort of ringing out yeah now that you're telling me you're using a crappy mexican strat right that's the tone but it it perfectly fit that right it was the right i mean that, record. that that part was written on that guitar with that setup you know, it's like that part happened because I'm like, oh, this is the nastiness that is making me, that's really floating my boat, you know? Right. But like the other thing that's weird in that record that I've never encountered anywhere else is like, you know, very often with two guitars, like the sort of default is you pan one to one side and one to the other side. And it's like, well, I'm on the left, you know what I mean? But right. like um, in this particular case, like Ted had this theory about the guitars being above and below. And I don't understand what that meant, but we were down with it because <laughs> our idea was not to have it feel like these separated things, but that it was summing into one kind of tonality. So the whole guitar sound was this combination of this, you know, kind of like abrasive janky noise on top of the you know, you know, uh, real like steak dinner kind of like Marshall sound. And like, um, so the guitars are actually, I think they're both, uh, sometimes they're both double tracked. They're definitely always both stereo. Like I think that I don't remember what Bill's other amp was, but the idea was, you know, Bill is below and I'm above kind of thing. So there's, they're both on both sides. I, and it's it's Got it. so, I don't so, think stereo, I don't think stereo imaging works that way. But Ted yeah. talked a pretty good game, and it sounds really good on the record. So when you say below and above, so are you talking about both of you guys were panned harder on one amp and and softer on another amp, so that you guys are showing up? No, I 
I think it's literally, I think it's probably more like inside and outside, but I haven't listened to the record in that way. I haven't listened to that record with headphones maybe ever to really do I think I'm going to have to do that now. That's, I'm going to have to do this tonight. Like as soon as I, we're I just done. Remember, I just remember the pitch. I remember Ted's pitch. And I don't know if he was like sort of selling us a bill of goods, if it was like a conceptual thing for him, but I think it was definitely the right move because it made the guitars, they still, the parts are still distinct, but the overall image of the record is like, I think if you hard pan those guitars, it would be too weird. It would feel really unbalanced. Yeah. This kind of tweezed out noise on one side and then like, yeah. you know, Tim Lizzie on the other side. It just wouldn't balance, you know? It's just but, like being used to something as a listener, having no input on or no idea of any of that. Like I've never known it any other way. So now I'm trying to deconstruct and in my head, I'm trying to hear it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love that. Like I, it's one of my favorite memories of recording with Ted, that, I, that idea that he's like, well, instead of left and right, we'll do above and below. And I was like, wow, cool. <laughs> you know? And have you used this pitch? That's what I want to know. No, I've, my, my pitch is inside and outside. That's my thing is I'm like two guitars. Sometimes it's cooler to like, if someone's playing something, it's more like a rhythm part and someone else is playing a kind of higher twinkly part, do the rhythm guitars doubled, but put them kind of at nine and three. And then the twinkly stuff doubled hard pan on the outside. And it, in my mind, it makes a stereo image feel wider yeah. because that, those, because you get more of a sense of directionality from high frequency things than you do from low frequency yeah. things. That, that of, makes way more sense to me. Like I can actually visualize what you're saying. I'm still yeah. trying to figure out the, uh, but I mean, that's what I thought the it above was. and below. That might be what Ted was going for, <laughs> you know? But. So moving on, but last time I'll say it again, I've told you before, masterpiece of a record. So okay. then you move on to what Wondering, I oh. we blundered our way through it as best we could. It's all like, <laughs> there's very little that was intentional about that record. Everything just came out. So so then we move on and we follow up with the self-title um also to me an incredibly influential uh experimental to me in the point where i think zach gets a lot more open rhythmically yeah, and definitely. you know that sort of drives the songwriting in different directions and i'm glad that you said it before because I mean, if you kind of listen to the first couple of records, the guitars, I kind of look at as like hammers, hammers and chisels, right? Mm -hmm. That's what's kind of driving what's going on. And then later on, as you said, once Zach joins, rhythmically, you start to get the, the paintbrush, the guitars become paintbrushes on the music. So let's talk about who produced the self-title and, and, and what was that studio experience like tone-wise? Uh, John Aniello produced that record. Oh God, and, John's awesome. So yeah, were you guys up at Water for yeah. that? Yeah, we did it at Water Music, and then we mixed it at the Magic Shop. And um, great combination. And we, you know, we we I was really like keen to work with John because I I don't know if he had he I think he must have done something with Chavez by that point, but he also recorded that band Cell, yeah. New York New York band uh, that was on Thurston Moore's label. Yep. He did this record with them called Living Room. And I think it's a classic case of, of um, you know, people think they like the sound of a record, but what they really like is the spirit of the record, you know? Although I think that record sounds great, but I think that record sounds, it's like a 
perfect record. Like it couldn't sound any other way. You know, it just, sure. I love that record. It's a beautiful, the real record has a lot of soul. It's an awesome record. And, and I thought like John's, I just, but between that and Chavez and Dinosaur Jr., I was like, John understand. He's like, he gets the guitar thing. Like that's like, we should work with this dude. It would just, I just had a feeling the seller record really did it for me though. And, and, um, and, so you had the freedom to pick him. They weren't pushing yeah. like Gugga Garth on you. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. I think so. They, uh, the only person that anybody ever really pushed us toward was Lou Giordano. Who would also have been pretty great awesome. too. Yeah, Lou Giordano would have been awesome. Um, but I think, you know, we were, we had our minds made up about working with Ted. We know we were like, if we had the chance to work with Ted, we would do it in a heartbeat. And, and then with, you know, the records that I knew that John had done, I was just like, we should work with this guy. You know, it's, it's, I mean, um, I had the same feeling like we did, a, we did our second record with Ian Burgess. He was a, a producer of a lot of Midwestern punk records that I really idolized. And it was just like to hear the way that Ian recorded guitars and, and drums too. I was, I was just like, that's how I want my record to sound, you know, kind of thing. And, and that's how I felt about John's work, especially on that cell record. So, um, uh, but they, yeah, they weren't really, it was weird. That record was weird because they weren't, you know, I think in retrospect, we got a good, we got a, uh, like an unbelievably good shake out of our first Atlantic records experience. I think, um, I think we were phenomenally lucky and we got much more out of them. We had an exceptional experience. And I don't think we realized how exceptional it was. Um, but the, you know, the truth of major labels is like, if it's not a earth shattering success, right. If it's not a mega hit household name level monster of a success, then sooner or later, someone's going to think it's a failure and it's just not, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you, don't if you, yeah. don't, if you don't conquer the world, then you've failed. And so I think. Which was basically the late nineties. Yeah. For everybody <laughs> right. in our world. Exactly. So, I mean, in our minds, we, we hadn't failed. We did, we, it was, everything was looking pretty great to us, but, but so by the time it, it was time to do the second record, there was mostly the big struggle was, getting to the point of making it because it wasn't going to be on Atlantic proper. Um, it, it, but yet, you know, it was like a lot of stuff of like the necessity of fulfilling a contract and then who's going to put it out. We had friends in within this, you know, in the label, like people who are actually working on the record had become actual friends of ours. Mm -hmm. So we had a good working relationship, but then there's sort of structurally, we were a band that I think, you know, for the, powers that be we were clearly going nowhere in, ter in terms that they could understand so um but we still got to do our record you know and we got to pick john and pick the studio pick the studio and basically same thing we just got to do it nobody said you know i don't hear a single keep writing none of that stuff it was like when we were right yeah. the where's record, the hit i need the hit there was a little bit of i there was a little bit of like maybe you guys should keep writing going on because we, we we had a demo set up in the house at that point we were sending demos and it was like well hey it sounds great keep on writing and then you know we had 15 songs or something and we were like mm, maybe we just want to make a record now yeah. and but then we got to do it so you know no complaints it's just that when it came out it literally it physically existed 
And we did get to make a video or two, but beyond that, there was really nothing coming from the label beyond right. the physical existence of the record. But, um, but that's way better than a lot of people lived through. So I think we still got it pretty lucky. Um, but, but with John, uh, John is just amazing. And, uh, the, it was, uh, uh, much more, you know, Bill had the same, same amps. Well, he had a, I know his other amp, I think was a Fender twin maybe. So it was like a 800 and a Fender twin and the Schecter. Um, I think by then I had, we had a relationship with Schecter. So Kim was playing, probably playing a Schecter bass. She played a, this amazing, I think it's a 72 jazz, Fender jazz on Sweetheart, but I think on the last record is a Schecter, uh, Schecter jazz bass. Same and one she still plays? Yeah. And then, uh, or similar to it, she had a couple of them. And then I probably played a Marshall. I had a Marshall half stack again at that point and AC30, which is pretty much where I've stayed ever since like some version of that combination and i cannot for the life of me remember what guitar what, oh no i had a jazz i had a really cool 70s jazz master that i got for like 300 bucks because someone had refinished it with white uh like primer yeah so it was like they like seriously devalued it and they put a demarzio super distortion in it which is probably my favorite pickup of all time right. yes so i got this at atomic music and i was like my dream guitar so i think that's the guitar that's on most of from my part on most of the jawbox record but that uh recording with john was completely different from recording with ted because john did come to practice and do pre-production he had suggestions about song structures which were 100% great just a couple things but they were like massive improvements you know one song has a bridge because John was like wow you got to that last chorus pretty quick huh <laughs> we, were like, we were like uh yeah is that okay and he's like I don't know don't you think it needs to go someplace else first and, and I'm like you mean like a bridge and he's like yeah and I'm like oh, oh okay and then we wrote it on the spot and the song got way better so um and I think John, you know, but, but at that point, our whole experience with Ted was so focused on these like super minutia of our actual performance and making sure that everything was really locked. Mm -hmm. that we spent all the intervening time practicing with a click track and just being like, I'm pushing, I'm still pushing. I shouldn't push so much. I'm still gripping, you know, like really like boot camp. So when we went to record with John, we would do a take and, you know, come in from the take and he'd be like, oh, that was great. You know, and we'd be like, great, John, can't you hear I'm pushing in the second verse? It's that like that kick drum is way early. Like, what's up with that? We have to do this again. I was out of tune for half a bar, you know, like, and he's like, it, you know, it's rock and roll, but, you know, knock yourourselves out. So, so John we was were way more about feel. Yeah, no, totally. totally. And, and he made us feel like and, and whatever we were going to do, it was going to be the best thing we could possibly like, we were just going to kick ass no matter what. So it was a wonderful vibe and he encouraged us to play a lot more. So that's why there's a lot more, um, uh, you know, wacky instrumentation like the Hammond organ and toy yeah. drum kit and the bill played saxophone in one song. Not that you can hear it because we kind of buried it, but like all, you know, Kim did it some backing vocals, which she never sang before. You know, it was like, it was like playtime, like in Wonderland doing that record. It was really fun. 
And, and how long did it take you to do that one? That was a five-week record as opposed to seven weeks of Sweetheart. Yeah. Were you a thirdly long period of time? Were you on the, the Neve board, the room with the Neve board, the ADA? Yeah. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, it was a magical place. Really, really cool place. And I'm, I'm trying to think if there's anything else, you know, gear wise that was, you know, the coolest thing I remember seeing John mic the front of the kick drum with a speaker with like a, a, a base cabinet, I think with a 15 maybe. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty rad. Um, but, uh, and he used, he put a shotgun mic way up above the snare drum. Yeah. Like, That's cool too. You know, I'm not sure that any of that made it. I mean, the, the kick drum <laughs> made it, speaker thing made it into the mix. I don't think the shotgun mic did, but, but it was just like the tricks, you know, yeah, well, that's that's it. Every experience, you kind of take away something little that you like. You put in your tool bag and you use it like throughout your career. And you, being that your career is producing records, the fact that you had all those experiences with all these great people, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it's it's yeah. I mean, it's amazingly educational. But I do I do feel like like John's the number one teacher because you know like you could record you could record anything any number of ways and it would sound great you know like if it's good if the music is if the music is good and the players are present and and the arrangements you know if 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 it's inherently already there it almost doesn't matter how you record it you know i mean i hate to say that cuz it's like i don't mean to devalue my profession by saying that but like um but I think like the, the important thing is it's like, you know, of course it's, you know, of course if you have nice microphones and nice preamps and a good room and good gear, it sounds better, but like, um, plenty of records that are really great that really like really hit you. Like they were not recorded that way, but it doesn't fucking matter. It's like, you know, Bad Brains Black Dot demos was done in a carpeted basement surrounded by plush toys next to a heater and the singer was in the backyard. Yep. It was recorded on a four track and it's slamming, you know, because yep. it's inherently and it's like it's the the moment of the thing. And that's what I thought John was really great at. John was just like it's like the feeling of like how awesome it is to be creating something, you know, and you're like fulfilling your vision. John just has that power of like putting everybody in that moment, you know, and that's the thing that I really aspire to always that I think you just learn like, you know, that's, that's the number, you know, or like Ian Burgess had it too, where it's like to be in the studio with Ian and, you know, this guy recorded a handful of your favorite records and he's playing your song that you just did. And it's at like 120 decibels and he's rocking the devil horns just like, you know, <laughs> just like, holy shit, you know, Ian's our number one fan. Listen, we're, are we, I mean, we're loud. Wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? But just like that, that feeling, that's the thing, you know, anyway, whatever. I'm, I'm getting sentimental. No, but, um, it's, it's great. That's awesome. But, you know, but also like the gear is also important, but. Well, I mean, half the tone, which half way to the point tone, the microphone does count. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Half the tone comes from the intent, right? It comes from the performance. It comes from the heart. Um, you know, you, we were we were talking about this with uh, God. I can't remember who. And it, it, 
when it comes down to it, I can play through uh, the same equipment you would, and my hands aren't going to sound anything like your hands. Um, it's, I, I remember seeing a video of Jimi Hendrix, or maybe hearing, or maybe it was just hearing a bootleg, <clears throat> and being there was some live show, and I'm like, you know, my first five impressions of whatever song it was, I was just like, wow you know, holy shit, I'm having this like spiritual experience. And then maybe like sixth or seventh down the line of impressions, I'm like, wow, he is out of tune. Damn, that guitar is out of tune. But like, did I notice? Do I care? Does it even matter? Like, because I've just had this magic worked on me with a fucking out of tune guitar, you know, and it doesn't, it, it's absolutely unimportant, you know, in, in, in that guy's hands anyway. So, um, I've always been, I've, we're always searching for tone, right? And one of, one of my favorite guitar tones, um, if you haven't had a chance to hear, uh, Marcus King. So Marcus King has this, uh, this record called good, uh, Carolina Chronicles, I think it's called. So this dude's at the time, 22 years old recording with a super reverb, Super reverb, maybe a bandmaster, but like an old Fender amp with a tube screamer. And his guitar tone on his leads is mind blowing. And I've watched his uh, his rig rundown, and I'm like, okay, I know all his settings. I know what he's using. He's using his grandfather's old '60s 335 hollow body, which I don't have, but I have something close. And I was like, I'm gonna wail. Man, I couldn't come anywhere near the tone that guy came out with that on that record. Um, but for listeners out there, you want to hear a killer guitar tone? That record is phenomenal, especially his leads. So, you know, we we could God, we're almost an hour and a half in, oh, and we, we could just keep going. And you know what? We may keep going because we didn't even break into Burning Airlines. I want to talk about your solo record. I want to talk about New Freedom, which is an awesome project that you're working on with Zach. And, and, and this stuff is just so cool. That's, that's really Zach's brainchild, you know, I think. Yeah, you played on it, though. And you play. I, I didn't know you played piano. We yeah, didn't that's, break that's my, that. that's my childhood, you know, my like nebbishy like childhood uh, headphone shit really, you know, means that I can pick out a tune on the piano. It's so awesome because he and I were talking at one point. He's like, yeah, well, it's this new thing. I'm going to have a lot of players play on it. And we're calling it freedom because we just, we want to be able to play with it. And I heard the first song because I was like, oh, awesome. I'd love to play with you on something. Send me a track. And then like I heard it, I'm like, oh, I can't hang with these fucking guys. There's no way I'm playing on this stuff. So, I mean, I think everybody that's involved with that has the common denominator of just being like, uh, like i mean like mark cisneros who's who plays a lot of the wind instruments on that i mean he's a great guitar player bass player really great drummer like i mean you know mark's just i think he's got a real punk spirit like he just wants to make music by any and all means and so he just you know he's the kind of guy who's like probably saw a saxophone in a thrift store and he was like fuck it i'm gonna i'll play that saxophone you know right i'll figure that out yeah yeah it's awesome yeah so we're gonna hit you with uh with some rapid fires 
some, okay. you know, they, they could be longer stories, but I want to, you know, we're going to hit you with some questions that are just always fun ones to ask. Dan. Okay. Hold on. Before, before we do that, I do have one question about one specific thing. So we talked to guys that have, uh, that have managed to do signature instruments, signature amps. You're the first one I know that has a studio that has a signature amplifier. Oh, well, what I mean, is that? that magpie custom the big crunch head oh yeah well that's uh it's brooks harlan who um is now gonna play guitar in jawbox but who plays uh in uh, guitar in war on women and is has played bass on he played bass on my solo record we've done a yep. lot of music together um he's uh my good friend uh and um has he has an amp repair and design business right um and so um he the the i mean he's built a bunch of amps he built a really great um uh i think it's like a 15 watt recording amp called the screaming baby that's based on like an old premiere design super cool amp it records really great um and um he he's built all of his all the amps that war on women uses he built uh, he he built um uh he built an amazing bass amp that uh is just like super like overpowered that looks like a giant aquarium like you can look at yeah power tubes you know 200 watt kt88 um and then uh he built for me he uh my friend andy has this uh 70s high watt it's a dr502 that's like a real high watt like 1974 i think and um and i've recorded andy's amp a bunch and i'm like oh that's the amp that i wanted back when I got that crappy one, that's the sound. And so Andy was kind enough to let me borrow it and Brooks just copied it. So the big crunch head that I play is just a, it's a clone of a DR502 uh. um, inside, a, inside a trainer chassis that was just sitting around. Um, but I mean, it's amazing to know somebody like Brooks because Brooks is really like, he's like, in, in, like he's somebody you should talk to because uh, he's like a super like nuts and bolts dude. You know, we would love yeah, really yeah. awesome. shit. I had seen uh, when he first made it, someone sent me a picture of the one knob. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, that's the best thing I've ever seen. Yeah. That's you plug into it and it has one knob. Right. Done. Yeah. It is kind of good. Like the more, you know, I feel like it's classically true. Like the more controls you have on an amplifier, the, the more trouble you are going to get in. So. <laughs> I just had to ask about that before we started our uh, our little rapid fire session with you. Yeah. No, I mean I'm 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 super lucky. It's one of the one of the greatest bits of good fortune in my life that I've got to know Brooks and that we're able to have this symbiotic thing with the the amp repair shop and the yeah you, same building right? He yeah, in the same building. Yeah, and and to be able to make music together too is is really great because he and I are are very we have a lot of the same sort of base level influences although he's way more into rush than i am but <laughs> so there's some rush that comes through on your solo record a little bit i don't hear it because i never listened to rush i don't believe that i literally I told, never <laughs> but you remember i told you when that record came out i was like i hear rush and you're like you can't be you're wrong yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, i mean you know, maybe it's just in the air i, know. I mean be. i grew up Could in the be. suburbs so probably it is it's just in the in it's the in the water yeah it's exactly. in the fluoride in the water yeah <laughs> just from cars driving by your window right 
blasting right. rush, rush in, the sound of rush in, in 82 80s <laughs> suburbs definitely probably all right so what's the coolest piece of gear you ever got to use could be live could be in the studio i hate this i'm on the spot coolest piece of gear i ever got to use I can't if one I can't name just one. I can't name, right, just one. name a couple. Go for it. Oh man. Um uh, this suddenly it's not rapid fire. <laughs> it's very slow fire. I'm sorry. Very slow rapid fire. Uh I don't know. This like Chandler again, my preamp is pretty good. <laughs> I mean, that's sitting right here on my desk is pretty great. Are you just saying things you see in the room? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, this room's got full cool gear. This room has got like a Behringer Euphoria, you know, <laughs> like this. Oh, that cool. It's but, a shag uh, carpet, uh, <laughs> washcloth. Good talk, right? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, but I mean, the Chandler, the Chandler Pre is pretty rad, though. I, I would say that's a pretty amazing gear. That day, my the Daking my Pre uh, EQ is is you know, in terms of like when you for recording stuff when you, you know, I mean, the Coles 4038 mic is one, you know, where you just like, there are certain things where you, you hear the source and then you pull up the sound in the control room and you go, you know, so I feel like the Coles 4038 microphone, that's probably pretty awesome. You know, very cool. I'm sure the Neve board, the, the yeah, I mean, any, any, any like any piece of Neve gear, of course, is like has that amazing, you know, thing. I mean, the the Chandler, this like uh, uh, the the Chandler 500 pre that I'm looking at here is great because it's like it's only gain, you know, and impedance, but in that whole spectrum of how much, you know, like there's such a world of kind of color just in how much gain it, it that it's a pretty phenomenal piece of piece of gear in that way but you know like i said i'm not like a super gearhead really oh yeah but it's That's so bad. funny because you said you have a very bad memory and you're not a gear guy but you've got model numbers down pat and you remembered some pretty awesome stories well 40 calls for you <laughs> don't tell yourself sure classic microphone i mean that's like you can't you know yeah. but uh yeah i mean if i was going to take but okay or but then I always say, like, if, if everything goes, you know, tits up and then I was going to, I had to only to keep like one thing, you know, it would be like the AKG C12 microphone. That's, I would keep that, you know, I would sell everything else before I sold that or my the Royer 121 ribbon mics. Nice. Probably. Yeah. But. So my, uh, the, the last question I always ask is always the same. I can't answer it. I wouldn't be able to, but a desert island setup, desert island gear, three pieces, guitar, amp, pedal, however you want to combine those pieces. What would be uh, your the setup that you could live with forever on a desert island? Oh, uh, this jazz master that is here. That's like a America, uh, two thousand American uh, jazz master, uh, and an AC thirty, and um. Some kind of delay pedal, probably, or like a. If I could pick anything, maybe a uh, maybe an Echoplex. Nice. 
that's a great setup. That's a uh, unique desert island. <laughs> but we get a lot of questions about: Do I have to be battery powered? Does this thing have to be portable? <laughs> right. Yeah. We, so. we got we got from somebody. Uh, what I'm, what am I going to play on a desert island? I'm going to enjoy the beach. <laughs> they were thinking way too much into it. Yeah, I mean it's probably right. I mean, in all honesty, on a desert island, it's probably going to be like two coconuts. Bang yeah, right. <laughs> well, we all watched Gilgan's Gilligan's Island. Island style. Yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, you can make an exercise bike that powers the radio that <laughs> takes care That's of the satellite. Of the AC30 is my <laughs> exercise bike made of palm fronds and coconuts. <laughs> Jay, thank you so much for joining us tonight, man. It was it was great. Um, we appreciate. We didn't, talk, we didn't even talk about my favorite guitar player in the world, Jordy Walker of Killing Joke, and how much I want to bite his setup. That's that's my entire focus of my life right now is like biting Jordy Walker's guitar sound. But can you, can you promise to come on earlier? I just had to say it. Yeah. Could you promise to come on for a part two? Yeah, we'd love to do more. There's plenty more we can do. If you can endure it. I mean, and this is really, I really enjoyed it. Super fun. So, oh, we had a blast. Can tolerate it. I mean, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, All right. Love you heard you that, guys. folks. Part Thank two you. coming Thank soon. Thank you very much for having me. Super Thank you for being on. Take care. <laughs>